If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. This is Dr. Scott. This is Dr. Shiloh. Hey, guys. Been a while. But we're back. We are. We, we're doing we made really it. Well. Yeah, we're doing good. Right under the wire for right? the end of June. I mean, compared to last year, we're just, we're cranking through. We were a all, hot mess last year. Yeah, we're, we're allowed a couple of weeks, but it's, it's important for us, actually for both of us, it's really important to get this episode in under the wire before the end of the month, because for, as most of you know, um, I'm assuming that most of our, uh, listeners are LGBTQ friendly. Uh, This is Pride Month. Uh, Pride Month is celebrated around the world in countries that allow it at least. Right. And uh, to that extent, you know, the reason you have a Pride rally is because uh, it represents the the needs and movement forward of a community that's been marginalized. And certainly that represents, that is representative of the LGBTQ community of which I am a member of that community. And Dr. Shiloh is one of our strongest allies, which we really appreciate. Pseudo member, honorary yeah, member. You're an honorary member. I'd give, you a, I'd give you a card. <laughs> God knows they want to take my card away because I, I don't have the fancy dressing gene. <laughs> But um, so this is going to be a weird one. Um, we're going to focus on something that's going to sound real, really prurient um, at the beginning, but there's a reason for it. So this week we're talking about gay serial killers and not to glorify the killers themselves, but to really point out that some of these cases were delayed especially the older cases, not so much the newer case that we're going to talk about. But like we were talking about in uh, Soul's case a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. that the LGBT community is continues to be a marginalized community even today. Right. In that this is – and there's it's marginalized for a number of reasons. Um, even though we can say that pride moves us forward – and unifies us and gets us out there as, you know, we're here, we're queer, we're just as boring as you. The other side of that is, is that not everybody can step up to that and own it. So you can be marginalized by being a person of color. You can be marginalized by being a member of a lower socioeconomic status. You can also be marginalized even if you're a white, psi-appearing male because you are in the closet, Mm -hmm. which puts you at risk in your attempt to explore your sexuality. And that's something that we used to see a lot, right. you know, in, in former decades, but it still exists. And it's actually really related to the case that we're going to start out with today. Well, and a lot historically, and, and we're going to sort of go through these cases chronologically just to highlight some of that. Um, but 
I like to see this as more of a focus on the victims. And we are going to touch on a case, actually, where the murderer was not gay, but the population which he targeted was. Um, But really looking at it, you know, kind of taking what we've done with some more recent episodes and looking at the the victimology of it a little bit more um, rather than highlighting the murderers so much. Right. It's not about glorifying them, but it is about looking at, especially drawing a parallel between souls victims and LGBTQ community victims because they're, you know, they're invisible. You know, we're barely, you know, the trans community is seeing a huge upsurge in violence against them. And I, I wish that, I mean, as much as we talk about being snarky and having our sense of humor, it is really devastating that the increase in LGBTQ hate crimes has just shot through the roof in the past 20 months Mm -hmm. with most of that, even with an even higher percentage um, represented by the trans community, which is just, it's, it's unacceptable. It's completely unacceptable. It is. And, you know, oftentimes, and, and I know we're sort of preaching to the choir with our audience, but people of marginalized communities just tend to be easier to dehumanize, which makes them easy prey. Um, who they may not be reported missing. People may be afraid to come forward as witnesses if they have a distrust in law enforcement. And that has definitely changed over the decades for the LGBTQ community. And yet for cultural issues, mm-hmm. I mean, for oh, sure. immigrant issues for who may have immigrated from other countries and have not really acculturated into Western society so that they have an understanding of their freedoms, or even if they do have an understanding in their first generation or, you know, original uh, generation or first generation here, the idea that you can't be out to your family if your family's from the old world and still adhering to those value sets. Right, right. In sort of our community, the psychological community, this past week um, was kind of a big move on part of the American Psychoanalytic Association. Right. So they actually came out and formally apologized for the labeling of homosexuality as an illness, Um, whereas the American Psychiatric Association had declassified homosexuality from the DSM whatever number it was back then. Right. They declassified it in 1973. The um, American Psychoanalytic Association actually didn't officially jump on board with that till the early 90s. So it's kind of a neat, I think it's a really significant moment just to apologize and to say that out loud. And it, it falls in the footsteps of actually the New York Police Department um, so we're coming up on tomorrow, as we record tomorrow, right. June 28th is the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Um, and so NYPD has come out recently and verbally apologized for the raids, for the discriminatory laws that they held back then that led to that uprising and that movement. So it it's it's a long time coming and it's different to remove something from a book and to come out and apologize for it formally even all these years later it does make a difference it it doesn't take out necessarily the sting 
it is important that these things are happening, especially in the current environment where we seem to be moving backwards in some ways, which is incredibly frightening. Yep. Uh, there was a group of there was a group of really I don't even want to call them pastors because I can't see how these individuals represent my understanding of Christianity in any way. But they, you know, these sort of uh, strip mall pastors all got together to have a protest recently. You know, and made it all about um, sexuality, which, I mean, if we're going to make a joke out of this, if we can have some dark humor, the dark humor is that all of our studies show that the more of a strong gut defensive reaction you have towards a member of the LGBT community is only a reflection of your own sexuality on that spectrum. The louder you are. Right. So it's like, guys, you are just really calling attention to your your own uh, yeah. inner dealings, your inner workings. Yeah. You know, one of the things I'd want to say, too, is as important as the Stonewall uprising was, uh, and it was a, a seminal moment in the movement, and there are a lot of sort of apocryphal, almost mythical stories about who started pushing back against the police at that time. And one of the most popular ones, which really is not proven, but that it was not even really just a, you know, a passing gay guy. It was drag queens. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Mm -hmm. the drag community that was like, we're sick of this shit. We're not taking it anymore. I'm not going to get hauled into jail and beaten up again. And one of them picked up a brick and started throwing. Started it off. But it wasn't the first one. You know, there have been other protests that did not lead to huge change, but actually only fanned the flames of uh, difficult interactions between law enforcement and the gay community. But we forget that it was against the law, and there were many Jim Crow-type laws that were enacted of in small clubs because they would try and You know, the gay community would try and meet in small, out-of-the-way places, but someone would always report it, and it would be – they'd have these draconian laws of, okay, well, you can't dance, or your arms can't be moving. Yeah, exactly. It's – well, I I wish it was – had as nice of an ending as that, because some of these, you know, especially there was a a horrific – uh, attack in New Orleans on an upstairs gay bar in the in the French Quarter, where people were burned to death because oh the doorways were blocked and Molotov cocktails were thrown in. And at that time, I mean, the the police were somewhat. There were some that were trying to help these guys mm-hmm. get out. It, mm-hmm. it was a horrible terrorist act. But sure. there's been a lot of enmity uh, between right these individuals and sort of entities against the LGBT community for a very long time. Right, right. So we're going to start with just basically a review of there's a couple of cases we're going to talk about that we have touched on before, but just because they are sort of bigger cases, we would be remiss if we didn't mention them here. Um, so we're going to go chronologically, some overlap as far as date, but I wanted to look first at the trash bag murders, which we covered actually in season two, episode four in our exorcist episode. Right. We did our crossover with Hollyweird Paranormal. If you guys remember, this is the case that I covered at the end of that episode. But essentially, there was a string of serial murders that were taking place against gay men in the West Village area of New York in really starting off in January of 1973. And January 
was a horrific month. Men were violently murdered within the same month, seven men. So there were single men. There were a couple occurrences of two men that lived together being murdered in their apartments. And all of them were part of the gay community and really specifically part of the leather community. Um, And that went unsolved for years. And then about four years after the film The Exorcist was released, between 77, 78, there was another string of murders where gay men were being murdered again. And this time their dismembered bodies were being washed up on the shore of the Hudson River in trash bags, dismembered. Um, and they, were, they weren't they were even identifiable. They were so decomposed. Right. Um, I think eventually they were able to identify the tattoo on one of the body parts that belonged to somebody who had been missing. But all these men had just been missing as far as people knew in, in the village area. So when this was happening... Um, a journalist named Art, Arthur Bell, who wrote for the Village Voice, he really focused on the story a lot because they really didn't feel like it was getting the attention from the police and the media that it deserved. And clearly, the the community was terrified. Well, once again, a throwaway population. So, well, you yeah. know, what's it what's it going to hurt that a couple of these theories, you know, right. are dead? Right. Um, and. It, So he starts writing about this in the Village Voice, and eventually someone calls him up and says that he is the murderer and stays on the phone with him for a good 20 minutes talking about um, committing—oh, I'm sorry. Eventually, um, a man named Addison Verrill had come out. He was a really well-known film critic for Variety magazine. He was found murdered in his apartment. Um, and as soon as that story starts to fold into the Village Voice um, articles, then Arthur Bell gets a call from somebody claiming to have killed Addison Verrill. So interestingly enough, there you talk about, you know, going back to where I was saying about marginalized pop- populations. Now it's not just a throwaway gay guy in the village. It's actually somebody who is well-known. Bingo. So this is somebody who has celebrity and is respected not only in the LGBT community, but across another community, the theater community, the movie community. Yes. You know, so this is someone he's known. Yep. So it raises his street cred, I guess. or People care. Yeah, people care. Because they know him. Um, and... It, the killer stays on the phone and ends up saying, you know, we were, we were engaged in some alcohol use and drug use and back at his apartment and it was consensual sex. And then something just hit me. I felt like I was being rejected and wasn't being reciprocated. And I ended up murdering him, um, bludgeoning him to death with a cast iron skillet. So... So that happens. Bell gives his info to the police. Um, and then Bell ends up being contacted by another man that says, I think I was in prison with the guy that killed Addison Verrill. He confessed to me, and his name is Paul Bateson. So Paul Bateson was 33 years old. He was an alcoholic, um, worked at various New York hospitals. He was a gay man that was in the, the leather community as well. And um, the police basically went with this lead, picked him up, and he confessed pretty quickly to Addison's murder. 
So Bateson was the x-ray technician in the film The Exorcist. And interestingly, he's wearing a black leather wristband with studs on it. So it was just yes, a little... which I didn't notice until, until after Al, we watched yeah, Al this. Al pointed it out to and us. And our friend Al pointed it out, and it was super eerie to watch after that. Um, so afterwards in, in prison, whether it's true or not, Paul Bateson ended up confessing to the trash bag murders. Um, to several other inmates, and and the police kind of took it at face value. So whether he did or whether he didn't, they weren't able to yeah. prove that. But um, he he took credit for them, and he I mean he confessed to the other crime pretty quickly. So, but I think it's interesting, you know, in all of these, I think my thought has been okay. What is motive here? Um, and majority of them, especially if they're sexually motivated, is going to be some sort of sexual sadism involved and, and probably some some diagnoses of some severe paraphilias, violent paraphilias. But I think that would be interesting to talk about as we go along with each of these cases. Yeah. Motive. And I want to I want to circle around to something and doing the research for this episode. One of the things that you know, I you know I, I get very in a and in, in very much in a tunnel and diving into research and trying to sort between the crap mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and the stuff that's actually verified. And you know, I couldn't help but click on something, and it's just I wanted to rinse my eyes out when oh, I. For, but for a reason, you're not gonna you're you're gonna be surprised by. And it was on a, a site. I won't even give the the site. It was like a someone's blog. And the title of it was, Why Are So Many Serial Killers Gay Men? And I thought, okay, well, that's a big You can see my face assumption. right now. Yeah, I know. She what? just she just did the, the blink <laughs> shake head. Um, and it's some guy, and he, he makes a, a list of 25 serial killers, 25 male serial killers, 11 of whom identified as gay. But a list of 25 is by no means exhaustive. Right. And, and not even half of those identified as gay. Right. So, I mean, that's an interesting idea to look at it. But and, and interestingly enough, if I, and I thought because I saw so many fucked up responses to it where people are piling on and just saying like with all sorts of weird, bizarre, uninformed, homophobic responses the theories there was a one like somebody was like well the violence comes from that germ that gets the germ infection that messes up the i mean like oh no 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 please don't right you know there's a germ theory that some doctor from kenya i believe is is proposing which is just absolute bullshit but then one had you know and and then i uh, you know these are the times where you read the comments and you just think yeah the world just needs to be cleansed with fire because this is how dumbass people are and then someone wrote back and actually in a very much more calm manner than i would have said hey um that's not how stats work good that's not how stats work at all thank you and by the way you're looking at uh and then he actually went through the whole list and showed well yes it is interesting that these people were drug addicts and it is interesting that they were part of the lgbt community and it is interesting that these were their but those things are not connected making them we're talking about people who are violent and Mm -hmm. and you know just statistically went down to show that actually it was not statistically significant at all right but 
you know, it's just one of it's another one of those examples of, you know, you can post any dumbass thing on the internet and oh, someone's sure. going to run with it. Sure, just crazy. Sure. Okay, so the trash bag murders. That's nineteen seventy three. Um, and how long did a, it go on for? Well, those those one the group of seven was in nineteen seventy three in one month, and then oh my gosh. it came okay, up was... again another group between seventy seven and seventy eight. Um, and unfortunately, there's not a lot of information because he confessed so quickly that they just kind of okay, their we're hands. done, yeah. and we don't know like well what I mean it would be fascinating to know like what why that month and why I know. you know and the the sort of looking at the profile of his victims you know what was he going for because right. it's very clear in some of these others that you know especially when we talk about Jeffrey Dahmer clearly had. Uh, a, a victim type that he sure. went after and yeah. that he refined over the years. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that month is just so concentrated. Either that's – if it was Bateson, you know, there's a, just a lot of stuff going on there where he's in a frenzy for a month. But pulling yourself together enough to be able to pick someone up and go home with them in between. I mean, I don't know. It sounds – Exhausting. Yeah, and working um, at a hospital too. It's like he's got a full time right? job. Jeez. But if if you want to hear about that a little bit more in depth, go back and listen to our other episode. Um, also, the same the director from The Exorcist, William Friedkin. Um, he also did the film Cruising in 1980, which we kind of talk about in our other episode as well. But it looks at um, some undercover operations that happened in New York as a result of investigating those offenses. So that brings us to our next person you already spoke of, Jeffrey Dahmer, who was actively killing between 1978 and 1991. Um, interestingly, when I hear Jeffrey Dahmer, I don't think gay man, first thing off the top of my head. You I think, think psychopath, right? <laughs> yeah, I think cannibal, cannibal, necrophile. You know, there's all sorts of other things that I sort of have to go, oh, yeah, that's right. Well, and there are so many interesting things about – you know, we do have a lot of information from interviews with him that let you know when he was in prison before he was killed in prison that he gave you know besides having a relatively high i q and known to be an incredibly awkward and strange guy but very intelligent, he was able to express some of the reasons that he killed people in the ways that he did. I mean, it's it's interesting, like going back to what I was saying, that the majority, the vast majority of his victims were not white. Right. And although, you know, you can say that that leads to a racial, racial undertones or racial subtext to his inner workings, but it doesn't necessarily, I mean, it doesn't mean that he Hated. I mean, like, and this is like, believe me, folks. I am not defending Jeffrey Dahmer by any means. I just, if we're, you know, we were here to talk about psychology, right? And this is a guy that, on top of being a psychopath, had severe attachment issues, and those came out later in many of the interviews. That Jeffrey Dahmer was terrified of being alone. Mm-hmm. He had huge abandonment issues because his family basically abandoned him right. way early, and. You know, I, it would be fascinating to have profiles on his parents because they were pieces of work, especially just abandoning their their son the way he did, and also knowing that he had severe problems and right. just choosing not to to face it. But his abandonment issues, I think, were one of the main drivers of his violence, and it just happens to be that he was gay. 
being attracted to very uh, sort of slight, slightly built, right. you know, effeminate young men right. who were, you know, many of them were South Asian uh, ancestry. You know, there is a the racial. If we're going to look at a racial subtext, the idea that we have, and I mean, it is a stereotype, and it is not borne out by any statistics, except that there are we conceptualize in the West as people from Eastern countries as being submissive, which is a, a horrific and really terrible stereotype. But unfortunately, it has become sexualized for many straight men as well as as gay men. Right. So, I mean, it's all great. Like, great, let's not be racist. Let's be attracted to who we're attracted to. Right. But I think it also warrants that you should understand what your attraction is about and not be attracted to someone because you feel like they're, they're some, you are superior to them. Right? Yeah, that's very interesting. It, it could be just about body type and that that particular race of people has that body type. Right. I, I had a client one time that... It was really hard to decipher whether or not he met the diagnosis for pedophilia. And myself and another expert in the field came to this determination that he was just attracted to flat-chested, non-curvy women that were very petite, totally attracted to his first wife who met that body type. She didn't have to be underage. And... He didn't necessarily want someone that was underage, but the body type automatically makes people think, ooh, child. But that, that's but she could why, be 40, 50 years old, and he was fine with that. Right, and so which means, you know, we just it's so necessary to look at all the factors rather than just making assumptions yes. on these super, on the, you know, don't grab the, the closest ring and, yep. and swing on that. Yep. You know, he, there's a lot of ideas about Dahmer being traumatized as a child by a double hernia surgery. And uh, while I will agree that that is uh, any kind of medical procedure for a young child can be incredibly frightening. Now, I would say given the the weird affectional interactions between him and his parents or lack thereof, those two things could be elements of, of a traumatic experience, mm-hmm. but we don't have any proof of that. Right. You know, we're just, we're just surmising. Right. Um, and a lot of and people, but people want to hang on that, like, oh, that's how it happened. That's what caused it. And, you know, we know that this level of sociopathy really comes from, from brain and organic uh, structure right. and, and chemicals. Um, he was smart enough to choose his victims with people that were, I really do believe that part of it was that they were marginalized communities and people that were either alone, lost, or they were in the gay community and from these cultures that were not particularly accepting of gay individuals. So they have to live this double life, you know. So at that, and especially at that time when he was at his peak, was still not a particularly open time. There were, you know, there are gay areas of every large metropolitan area and even now medium sized metropolitan mm-hmm. areas. And this made for, you know, ripe hunting grounds for him to exploit and then further to be smart enough, like, hey, Nobody's going to recognize. Nobody's going to miss these people, right? You know, um, there were three men that got away from him, and it's interesting because there's one that's that's been on all the interviews. I think he may have passed away now, but he had done a lot of interviews in the last couple of decades, and the guy is was so traumatized. I mean, he got away, 
and maybe for many years thought, well, that was weird and gross and I'm glad I got away. But then to realize that he very easily could have been another yeah, victim. That's when the trauma sets in. Exactly. You know, just that, hi- you know, it can lead to hypervigilance and uh, just. Uh, yeah, a lot of symptomology could come up uh, delayed once you finally find out. Right. I mean, he had been handcuffed and he was able to fight it off and, and get out. And wow. interesting, later enough, he was Tracy Edwards is this individual and he himself was charged with murder later in his life for uh drowning someone. Oh, wow. So the span of Jeffrey Dahmer's murders was 13 years, and altogether, they say, 17 boys and adults. Um, the the one that is really shocking, and this is a, a very well-known fact about this particular case, and when we talk about marginalization, this is a kind of a oh-my-God moment, is that one of his victims escaped the young man was a 13-year-old Laotian boy, very slightly built, got out of the apartment, was basically running down the street screaming and naked. And right. he was he was woozy because Dahmer had drugged him and somebody called the police. The police show up and Dahmer comes up and says, it's all OK. It's just my boyfriend. We, we You know, he got a little drunk. I'll take care of it. I'll take care of it. Oh. Now, on one hand, the pol- you want to say, well, oh, well, the police were like, oh, OK, well, this is not a big deal. I have I, I'd struggle with it thinking, wait, you're a professional and this is a 13 year old Laotian boy. And this yeah. clearly mid 20s, late 20s guy is saying. This is my boyfriend. Yeah. They they wanted nothing to do with it. They just didn't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Whether they didn't want to take paperwork on it or it just there was an ick factor for them where they're just like, okay, you guys figure it out. Yeah. We'll so and, and one of the things I found, found interesting in, in some of the, the writings about uh, Dahmer's death, he was killed by another inmate while he was incarcerated in prison, is that um, there were several people that surmised that it was retaliatory because they were tired of him taunting other inmates with his crimes, which I find completely contradictory to the known information. This is a guy that basically didn't speak to anybody right? and nobody wanted to talk to him. And the reality, and I can, I can vouch for this from, from working in prisons is that guy just wanted to gain some street cred. And he's oh, like, sure. yeah, I'm going to take out Dahmer yeah, and I'll be high profile. Exactly. And once again, you know, the idea that, you know, being LGBT is pretty low on the rung in prisons, or at least it used to be. It's not as bad as it used to be, especially in, depending on where you're in, in incarcerated. Uh-huh. But because he was, you know, he was uh, having sex with underage guys, which makes him, in their eyes, a pedophile, you know, that's an absolute target right. in the prison system. Right. And just so. being high profile. I mean, all the, that's like the trifecta of putting someone in segregated or special population right right. right there so and who knows if if the guards i mean this is like this is a very prolific killer and the the guards could have been very much like i'm not my job to protect him might leave this gate open right who knows it happens so he met diagnoses for necrophilia um the necrophilia sexual interest in dead people or body parts um i believe in his interviews he talked about finding it sexually arousing when he would cut into a body and feeling that heat radiating mm-hmm. out of it. However, there's really not an indication that 
he was a sexual sadist per se because he didn't – even though we hear of how he killed some of his victims, especially when he's trying to make these sex zombies. He was and, trying to make sex zombies, yeah. Um, you know, pouring acid into their brains. He really did not enjoy seeing people suffer or become sexually aroused to the pain and suffering. It was a means to the end of – them making him, you know, him making them his sex zombies. And subservient. And once again, going back to that attach, attachment issue, if I have a subservient, you know, sex zombie or sex slave, they won't leave me. Right. Because, right. you know, he felt everybody else had abandoned him. You know, one of the other things that we talk about, I mean, we talk about the, the people that were trauma, you know, the victims who were clearly horrifically treated by him. One of the things they forget is how the, the the members, the residents of his apartment building were horrifically traumatized because they were kept out of the loop while all this is going down. Like suddenly, you know, the police descend upon this area and they start uh, cordoning off everything and digging around. They get and this whole floor of the apartment uh, has other residents and right. they're lower income residents. They're people of color. He had relationships with those people. And there are interviews in some of the most recent documentaries about – and I'm not trying to be funny with this. He was giving food to people. He was giving – He, he you was know, baking. He was eating you – know, he was cooking some of his victims oh, and you know, giving sandwiches to people. You know, and they're dealing with the trauma oh, man. of being in relationship with this person, of having engaged in cannibalism possibly. Right. I mean there's no proof of it except – but how it's could likely you not happen, think right? that? Oh. So there's just diagnostically, there's so much going on with that him is. because as much as you want to go, this is a really, really sick individual and a monster. There was some part of him that wanted to be connected to someone else in even a really twisted, dark, you know, evil way. But then to cross that line and engage other people like – he, one of the things he said is, I wanted, I, I wanted to eat them. I wanted to ingest them so they were inside me. Right. So why are you giving it away to other people? I, it's very confounding. Without them knowing. Yeah, there's there's an interesting piece to that. He also probably met the, the diagnosis for pedophilia as well. I mean, he'd been arrested several times for exposing himself to children, um, some molestation charges, as well as, obviously, you know, we talked about the underage sex partners that he was caught with, whether they were prepubescent or postpubescent. But, I mean, he would he would lure boys to his apartment with, you know, I'll give you 50 bucks to take pictures of you and then drugs them and fondles them, posing them and taking pictures of them. Um, and then along with that, we, exhibitionism. Right. You know, we, we've talked before in our paraphilia episode back in season one about paraphilias traveling in threes. So if you know about one, there's probably two others that are present for someone. And um, usually ones that go hand in hand are like exhibitionism and voyeurism and then frauderism. That's a really um, common cluster. But these all make sense too, you know, trying to well, those, except I mean, necrophilia, but right, well, you know, that's but, pretty rare. But that first triad you're talking about really represents developmental periods of a child's life. I mean, the you know, it's very primitive, it's very childlike. Right. And there's not necessarily a violence 
there's not violence connected no, to those. No, it's more compulsive, right. anxiety relieving for whatever reason. Well, that's what it turns but, into. Sure. But the what it for you know, at first it's sort of in, in a normal sense exhibition that little kids go through is completely normal. Playing you know playing doctor right. because their kids are curious. It's when that when that turns into a kink. And is, you know, pancaked with two others, you know, into that triad. That's when it gets to be, it has the potential to be problematic. Yeah. Obviously his, his alcoholism, there's a substance dependence disorder there as well as a major depression was pretty well documented with him too. So a lot, a lot of stuff. There's also been some alluding to of maybe an Asperger syndrome. I mean, clearly he was socially awkward but there's been a lot of um you know early years of emotional neglect too for him so right i'm sure that's just seen in a lot of different ways all right anything else about Dahmer? god it reminds me so much of anthony soul as we're talking about it again i know isn't that i mean it's, it's just, just so a, uh, amazing i mean like the 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 parallels the parallels are are, are amazing yeah So just to touch, we would be remiss if we did not touch on Andrew Cunanan again. And we spoke about him in our Emmy episode in episode two of season two when we talked about the miniseries about the killing of Gianni Versace. This one's interesting because it's sort of all over the place as far as victims. And he was a gay man that was arguably quite the psychopath as we covered in our other episode. But he has a a few different victims that I think have kind of feed that classic psychopath in that if he didn't need them anymore, he got rid of them, or they were only there for a a little bit for a specific use, like the his um, fourth victim, William Reese, who was just randomly, you know, he shot him to steal his truck and take his vehicle because he needed it. That was convenience. Convenience, I mean, well, yeah. Yeah, is that, that's what, yeah. I mean, I guess they're all, for, they all fill, fulfill some form of convenience, but once right. again, kind of what I was talking about earlier is that, was it, what was it, Miglin, mm-hmm. his name? You know, Miglin was a, a man of great means. I mean, right. e- extreme wealth. He didn't need anything, but here's somebody that had not dealt with his sexuality and was closeted, and that made him a target. Right. Right? This is right. somebody that was has kids and had a wife, very big in the community. Yes. You know, had a very strong religious conviction and, and ties to the church. So here's this, you know, sort of talented Mr. Ripley type character that comes in and knows how to work it. Yeah, Miglin was his third victim right. and horrifically killed. I mean, the level hands of and violence, feet bound, yeah. um, stabbed him, slit his throat, just really up close, horrific stuff. Whereas the his his first and second victim were both. Well, his first victim was was Jeffrey Trail. He was a mutual friend between. Himself, Andrew Cunanan, and his ex-boyfriend that lived in Minneapolis. And I feel like that was really sort of jealousy motivated. He thought maybe they were carrying on, quote unquote, behind his back, even though he lived in California and was not present and wasn't with this guy anymore. 
he didn't like that they may have had a relationship going on and just beat him with a hammer to right. death as soon as he so saw him. A, a different kind of violence. I mean, if we're right. looking at, at Dahmer, there's clearly hitting those trifecta of symptoms as a child, the killing of animals, the mm-hmm. morbid curiosity with the structure and anatomy of dead right. animals and, you know, killing someone so early. I mean, he was just hitting all the markers right. of right. violence. And, and sexualizing like, the violence, yes. masturbating over dead animals. And right. Like that. Which is not what Cunanan no. was at all. His no. was psychopathy, but probably born out of pure antisocial. He didn't want to be with anybody. He didn't care. It was all about I mean, that great scene where Darren Chris is attempting. Is it Darren Chris? Yeah. 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 Who's attempting. He like l- realizes, oh, I'm watching this. I'm supposed to look shocked. Yeah. So let me, yeah. let me let me figure out how I can imitate the other people that are surrounding me and their emotional reactions to this. Can I just say I love that Darren Chris is in the new Taco Bell commercials. Have you seen those? Oh, <laughs> For right. nacho fries. Yeah, D- Josh Duhamel was doing yes. Duhamel was doing those before. You know, they're they're really clever. I'm like, what is this? I know you think it's like Ooh, a big movie. I want nacho fries. <laughs> oh, but then someone like him that just won an Emmy is like in this oh, Taco Bell commercial. You, how much they must have paid? Oh, they God. must have paid so much money. Can't even imagine. He's so good. Wow, pay off my student loans, Darren Chris. Yes, please. Uh, so his second victim was his ex-boyfriend, Dave Madsen, who, after he killed Jeffrey, took him, like kidnapped him, took him on the run with him. So this poor guy is probably just trying to figure out what the hell's going on, just found out that their mutual friend was murdered by their friend. And at some point, he ends up just shooting him in the back of the head out by a lake somewhere. Um, just terrible. And then he goes on to murder Lee Miglin. Um, and then when he's on the run, William Reese, and then eventually Gianni Versace. And this is all within a three month period in 1997. So, and we see all different, he's just really talk about escalation and out of control, just beating someone with a hammer, shooting someone. Um, slitting someone's throat and stabbing them. They're very personal and intimate acts of violence. Yeah, yeah. Close up, not a gun from a distance. Well, you know, I mean, clo- the he uses guns, but they are very close up. Right. I mean, walking right up on Gianni right. Versace in the front of his home. Right. Um, and then eventually, you know, with, as the police are closing in, turning the gun on himself. So that's Andrew Cunanan. All right. So let's touch on the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando from 2016. This one, there was so many rumors. Oh, total misinformation. Lots of misinformation. Great representation of how that happens in the media. But I was fortunate enough to go to a training last year where I saw this incident get debriefed by some of the um, law enforcement agencies that handled it. It was probably one of the most heartbreaking trainings I've ever been to. We watched all of the surveillance footage from inside the club that night. Oh, my gosh. It didn't have any audio, which I think made it even more eerie and just terrifying to sort of fill that in on your own when you're not hearing it. But to watch it was just awful. Um, 
But so this was the shooting that was committed by Omar Fatin. He's 29 years old. He's from Fort Pierce, Florida. And this is a case of uh, a perpetrator who is heterosexual, but with extremist Islamic beliefs. And his motive has finally, you know, eventually after all the investigation coming out is just his sworn allegiance to ISIS. Now, at first, what were some of the rumors you remember hearing? Okay, that he, that first of all, someone supposedly came forward and said that I slept with him. I hooked up with him from Grindr, which was not true. Right. Uh, That he was gay and and had been, you know, sleeping around with a lot of different men and was really angry. And that's why he was taking it out on the gay community. Uh, What else? That he had been there like the weekend before scoping it out or was a regular. Right. He was a regular. Uh, And people were people were coming forward and just absolutely. Yes, I've seen him and this. I slept with him. Exactly. And it was all it was all untrue. Yes. Yes. So all of that is untrue. And actually how he ended up at Pulse was just complete happenstance. He didn't even know that it was a gay club. So originally he had staked out the Disney Springs area of the Disney Resort down there, which is like here in L.A., our our downtown Disney. So it's shopping district, restaurants. Still Disney-themed and Disney-related. Right. You don't have to go in the park. It's just, you know, somewhere you can go Lots of entertainment venues, yeah. Sure, sure. So there's, there's a House of Blues there, a concert venue. And that was going to be his original target. And, and a lot of this is coming in from you know some of the interview from his wife who survived the incident, who was um, eventually they didn't end up charging her with anything related to his crime, but um, also surveillance footage. So there is surveillance footage of that same night of the attack where he goes to downtown Disney. He actually has a stroller with the guns inside the stroller. Um, And he's going back and forth in front of the House of Blues and really just gets freaked out because there's such a law enforcement presence. And it it just it gave me chills because there's so many of these um, shootings that take place in concert venues now that, you know, just think this would have been easily just another one. Right. Um, and, And really just especially after watching the documentary about the one in France or in Paris, um, just horrific because there's such a, well, similar as with the nightclub, there's just a discombobulation when you don't know what you're hearing and is it fireworks? And, you know, I think of Route um, 91, the Vegas shooting, and your mind is just not, oh, this is a a place where I'm going to be focusing on trying to keep myself safe right. being entertained and there's all kinds of noises going on which is how terrorism works uh, right the, uh, the whole idea of, of terrorism is trying to instill an underlying ongoing chronic sense of fear that throws people off balance that and you throw, can't even go do those regular things right anymore. so it throws a culture and a society off balance and sure. that's 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 the motive right yes. there yes So he gets freaked out because there's so many cops in front of the House of Blues that he leaves. He goes, sits in his van, pushing a stroller with guns in it, has a minivan with more guns and ammo in it, and literally 
Google's nightclub to see what's closest and Pulse nightclub comes up as the first result. So so that's how he ended up there. He does um, park and without any weapons go in and kind of scope it out. But I mean this is minutes before he then decides to go back out and arm, arm himself and come back in and start shooting. So he – you know, obviously it didn't matter or maybe he thought it was a better target once he was able to go in and scope it out that it was a, a gay club. Um, but there's the surveillance footage of him in front of the House of Blues at Disney Springs is available online. You can find that. But eventually he, he goes in there. He murders dozens of people and the SWAT team is called and there's a standoff. There's some negotiations that go on. It was really interesting to listen to those because typically you don't get to negotiate with people who are terrorists or um, extremists in their their beliefs because they're 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 just ready to die and there's nothing to negotiate. So he he picks up the phone a few times and is just not listening. He's just spouting some extremist views and hanging up and then a couple of times they do get him on the phone and he listens a little bit but there was really not much of a back and forth when it comes to negotiation with him but he was he was eventually shot and killed during the SWAT standoff um but yeah there's there's no reliability or truth to the fact that he had ever been there before it was really just happenstance but obviously really, really impacted the gay community, I think, all across the country. Oh, the images are horrific. And I think it's so important. And, I mean, the number of victims, 39, is it? Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, which is just staggering. That's just a staggering amount of victims. And all young I mean, you know, they had nowhere to go. I mean, I'm telling no, you, this video. There was no way to run. They were yeah. laying down, trying to hide underneath each other. It was just awful. Yeah, there was one one of the victims who this is to me is just this is absolutely heartbreaking. All of them, it's heartbreaking. Such a loss and such wonderful memories that are posted online about all of them. But Eddie Jamald Roy Justice, uh, a 30 year old accountant in, who was living in downtown Orlando. And he was one of the ones that made it into the bathroom. Right. And they were all crowding into the bathroom. And he texted his mom at 2 a.m., yep. waking her up and said, Mommy, I love you. They're in the club shooting or they in the club shooting. Right. And then his last uh, his last text was, he has us. He's in the bathroom with us. He's mm-hmm. a terror. Oh, and God. then, you know, that asshole just gunned them all down. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I mean, just it's horrific. It's just horrific. I mean, you know. and that's where he ended up hunkering down as well, um, and where he ended up getting killed was in the bathroom too. But it, it, it was just you know obviously for the victims, and then in the footage you see the police officers once they make entry into the place, and it's dark, and there's strobe lights, and the music's still going, and you think, God, how how difficult to clear a building with an active shooter with all this going on and then victims on the ground screaming out, you know, just you think as a first responder, what a nightmare. It is a nightmare. And I don't, I mean, I, I'm not a DJ. I'm not a club owner. I don't, 
know how practical this is. But today with electronics and, and how everything is so compact, maybe one of the things for safety's sake, they need to have a kill switch. And a kill switch that just you flip it and all the house lights come on and the music turns off. Yep. You yep. know, just so that, this panic switch for yeah. sure. I, I don't see how that wouldn't be super uh. easy to do because talk about cutting down the confusion and and he then went into a gun battle with those first responding officers. Um, and they were able to get people out, have the SWAT team come in and, um, you know, try try to to get him out, call him out, and then eventually having to go in after and him. It should also be – we also need to note that it was not all the victims – it wasn't only male victims. There were women that were killed as right, well right. that were – some were members of the LGBT community. Some were straight and just there with friends for – a great night out, and they became victors, victims as well. Right. Okay. So that motive is obviously unique to kind of the other ones we're talking about. And so that one's very recent. The next one is sort of even more recent in a way, but also could span decades. So we're, we're jumping around a little bit. But this is the case of Bruce MacArthur in the Toronto uh, Gay Village murders. So I am not going to do this justice like the Uncover podcast did. All of season three is on this. It's called The Village. It's fantastic. How many episodes is it? Uh, 13-ish, I want to say. It It is so good. And everything that comes out of CBC Radio Canada is so good. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) That's great. Um, Someone Knows Something is one of my favorite podcasts. And just Canadians can just get people to talk. They just have such an awesome (laughs) demeanor about them that even when you're sitting down with the cops and trying to get them to give you information about their investigation, just... You just want to open up to them. <laughs> um, and there's a really good fan- Vanity Fair article that you and I yeah, read leading up to this as well. Um, so interestingly, Canada has less murders in the entire country than the state of Ohio does. I think last year it was like 620-something. Right. That just blows it's my mind. It's an incredibly low homicide rate. Blows Very low. They have one forensic anthropologist for the entire country. <laughs> I can't even think of how many we have in L.A. County, but that's just insane that this one woman is doing all of that. But, well, she's not doing a lot, I guess. Um, But Toronto is really a place that's known for its inclusiveness. Um, Half of its population identifies as a visible minority in some way. So you just think about how safe and included people of the LGBTQ community or minorities feel living and working and expressing their lifestyles in Toronto, what a great place that could be to live. Right. But, and even further distilled down to the village itself where I don't like to use the term, what we used to call gay ghettos, right. um, which I think is, is a, a terrible way to uh, frame it. But places that were typically sort of I mean, what an interesting phenomenon that happens is these low some some what have tended to be low income ish areas that then are populated by gays, and you know over the years they become incredibly gentrified because you've got this incredible talent base and work mm-hmm. base that come in that are. I mean, I'm not saying that every gay. I mean, I don't have that 
gay creative gene. I wish I wish I did. You're so talented. You're such a talented gay. <laughs> I know. It's like they're going to take my card away. You're just not stylish enough. Not stylish enough or talented enough. Right. Um, but you know that's one of the things that's really tragic about this particular incident is you know in interviews with people living in and working in the area in Toronto called the village talk about that their safe their safe place has been taken away that this is the place that we were supposed to be able to be safe and we can interact with each other and we have protection from from the outside world right. which you know and that exists in in several cities. I mean, we have West Hollywood here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's not the only you know. It's not the only gay community. There's Silver Lake, and every little suburb around has sure. their own gay areas. And even my hometown in Huntsville, Alabama, has you know a, a thriving gay community. And you want to feel safe. And somebody like this, a, a really disturbed, disturbed individual, took that away from these people. Also, because it's a different victim pool than we've talked about. While it is men of color, it was middle-aged men of color, which was, is kind of mind-blowing. It is. So by, let's talk sort of 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 what, how Bruce MacArthur came to be arrested in sort of the more um, recent murders, because we kind of work backwards from there. But by, by June of 2018, investigators were looking at Eight victims, men who had gone missing. Um, six of those were Middle Eastern or South Asian, and not all of them were out. You know, so I think a couple of them had wives and children, and right. were sort of living these double lives. But yes, middle aged, um, and they had all disappeared from the church in Wesley neighborhood, also known as the the village, between 2010 and 2017. So, in 2012. The, the Toronto Police Service actually forms a task force called Project Houston, as in Houston, we have a problem, um, that within a year, they really can't come up with any good leads. And by 2013, the task force is shut down. And then five more men end up going missing. So it, they just they have nothing and it's still happening. So, it, I mean, by 2017. And, and also, also, let me just say in the in the materials that we read, there was one point where, you know, half the guys had gone missing and the police were saying, there's no serial killer. Yeah. It's like, uh, I don't think so. Right. I think you've already got like once we were going at three missing it, from this. Clearly. Yeah, it's pretty evident. Um, and I think that's a common tactic, too, with police because they don't want to freak out the public. You know, we we it's so hard for them to say Yes, there's a serial killer, and we got nothing. I mean, could you imagine? I don't think they should be lying about it. I think they should say we're considering it. It's an avenue, or yeah, it seems that way. Yeah, but you know, that's a. I mean, that's. Gosh, that could be tough. a whole episode just there about large group reactions right. to events and how you know crowd mentality can go wrong very quickly, but. You know, I mean, going back to I think it was in June 2017 when Kinsman, one of the victims, disappeared, and he had been known to be in a relationship with the guy. Right. And he goes missing, and that was a big tell because this man was really well known in the gay community, and the bartenders was very well liked, mm-hmm. very very well liked, mm-hmm. and then. Um, 
they, the police started that second task force. Right. Project e- PRISM. That was PRISM. But even in December of that year, the police were going, no, there's no evidence of a serial I know, killer. It's I know. Like, oh, my God, guys. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, you're right. They took it right up to the end. So so they start this second task force in 2017. And this is when they start looking into MacArthur because they are able to link that he had – so he, he had his own – Landscaping business, right. kind of uh, mobile landscaping business, and <laughs> another killer in a van. <laughs> another one in a van, um, and he had hired a couple of the victims, and it was also known that he was in on and off again relationships with them. So they start to look at him a little bit more closely. Realize, oh, he's got a history of violence here. Mm-hmm. In in two thousand one, he was with a man and just hit him in the head with a lead pipe at one point after they went back to one of their apartments and turned himself in afterwards to the police and said, I don't I don't know why I did that. Yet he brought a lead pipe with him. Oh. So there's a little bit of planning Well, you there, never know when but, you're going to need you know, a lead pipe. I don't know why I did it. Was he playing Clue? Oh, my God. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> it's my favorite game ever. <laughs> See, who does he look like? Well, his, so his nickname was Santa. Because, yeah, there's a really creepy oh. picture of him as a Santa Claus. I so mean, he did seasonal work at the mall yeah. as as Santa. Um, so maybe he's a Colonel Mustard. I don't know. Yeah. He's okay. one step away from being a carny as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, looks like everyone's uncle. I mean, just kind of a nice looking older man, goatee, white hair. Yeah. So, so yeah, he has the, the, the lead pipe or metal pipe incident in 2016. Oh, he pled guilty to that, by the way. So he pled guilty to that assault. Um, and then in 2016, he was investigated for a sexual assault. But, I mean, I could find very little info on that. There was, like, nothing. But he never got charged for it. Um, but It's, he, it's interesting what his... Bless you. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, have to, I'll edit that out. Okay. Maybe. Um, interesting. And in, in what, in 2003, when that first... Uh, charge came or when he went to trial for it as part of his sentence they basically said well stay away from male prostitutes and don't use poppers you're not allowed to use poppers and anymore slapped him on the hand it's like, like yeah it's don't like the, do I, that I guess anymore. The, the poppers were doing the heavy lifting in that I, yeah, right. I, I still can't wrap my head around that one <laughs> Jesus it's just, it just speaks to our criminal justice system and, and I think overall I mean uh, <laughs> Just how they're treating this population. Yeah. Just come on. Just stop doing that, okay? And Once again, like we were saying, picking people that are part of marginalized communities and thinking all of these, you know, East Asian, Middle Eastern men, with the exception of like, you know, the one he was, um, Andrew Kinsman, that he was in a relationship with, a white male, the others, they had, they were living double lives. They had something to hide. And, it's interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see if anything comes out of psych studies on this guy or interviews over the years to see, you know, trying to divine what right. his his uh, motivation was or if there was like a traumatic brain injury at one time. Well, was- and so he he had been he married his high school sweetheart. They had a son and a daughter. And then he ended up coming out in his 40s and moving to the village. And I know you and I kind of prepping for this talked about. Is this a case of internalized homophobia because he came out later in life and is he just sort of 
stepping into this community later in life? And is this a manifestation of something going on there? Yeah, um, and we're not making any suppositions. We're just being no. curious. I mean, it's you know, I mean, internalized homophobia does exist, and it does. Do you want uh, to define that a little bit? Just oh yeah, sure. Talks. So the idea that an individual cannot deal with their own sexuality, and and it can express in men and women. Um, not you know, you don't we don't see as much in people who are gender fluid, gender queer, because those two people tend to be very progressive and and introspective and in dealing with their sexuality. But for a lot of males that come from another generation or another cultural structure that doesn't allow for expression of their sexuality in a healthy way, they can take that even though they want to be out and proud for want of a better term. The, the cultural forces come to bear and the historical intergenerational transmission of those ideas will be internalized. So in, the self-hate. It becomes almost. self-hate or self or, – or, or even like concentrated in one area. Like I'm great. I'm, I am a doting grandfather and I'm Santa Claus at the mall. But I hate this part of myself and the way it's going to come out. But I, but I don't want to say that there is causality. Right. There may be correlation to some extent with violence, certainly with domestic violence. We know internalized homophobia can lead to domestic violence. But to this level of being a serial killer, I mean, there's there was yeah. underlying psychopathy there. We're not going to say with. he has this this self-hate in this area now he's projecting it out and killing people because right that's just too easy and that doesn't happen that way let's see so you know i think also what makes this one different is that and probably what terrified the community is that he's he's embedded in this community too so he lives here he's known and he's the one picking off Victims, Right, which going back to that kind of destroying the sense of safety, right. it's also not that – it's not only that here's our environment, here's our community, and somebody has come in to start picking us off. It's, oh, God, there's one of us that's here, which is kind of pisses me off more about the whole police thing because that does err on the side of, hey, maybe encouraging people to look at patterns and – I don't know. I mean, you know, I know that you converge on increasing paranoia, but just yeah. having people be aware of like, hey, Santa guy has gone home with a different guy every week and we haven't seen any of those guys. Right. Like, you know. Right. Could be a clue. I know. I know. Yeah. They in the podcast, um, one of the community leaders was saying, you know, at some point we were telling each other, hey, before you go home with someone, tell your friend I'm going home with this person. Right. Just so someone knew who you were going home with. I Absolutely. mean, how terrifying to just have to do that. Um, so they in this project prism, they start paying closer and closer attention to him. And eventually he sells his truck to a scrapyard. And so the cops go and seize the truck and they find blood, traces of blood, and are in the process test it for DNA. They sort of have this pseudo match to a couple of the victims. And so they are now putting him under 24-hour surveillance. But wait, you buried the lead. How did they find the first bodies? You didn't talk about that. I haven't talked about it because they haven't found any bodies yet. Oh, I thought that that had already (laughs) happened. By the time they get... They They put him under surveillance? Yeah. 
Okay, sorry, folks. I like that's okay. I, no, I got no, my timeline mixed up. <laughs> no, I'm confused. Um, okay, so let me. So they put him under surveillance, right? Um, they're getting warrants for his arrest because they have these DNA matches. So is the DNA matches to then the bodies and the planters? No, I'm totally Well, I thought confused. that that's what tipped off that there was something about this is that there was a load of artificial rock planters right. that had been found in the middle of winter. And that's how this one uh, forensic pathologist was called in to like, why was she called in to look at them? Anyway, as they sat these decorative planters in a room overnight right. that were then out of the cold weather, they warmed up and started stinking to high heaven. Right. They peel back the polyurethane or whatever the covering was. And basically, he had just put all put these body bodies in, in, there. in concrete. Yeah. The, the, he So these planters, at least some of them and some of them were, were graves, was on the property of someone that he worked for. Oh, my gosh. That did landscaping for. This nice woman that's interviewed in the podcast, she, he did work around her place. He even brought some of the victims as workers. Oh, you know, he did a great job. Oh, my God. Exactly. He did such a good job, and he made these really lovely planters out of concrete. Oh, my God. Spot on. I don't know why they smelled so bad, though. Don't you know? Oh, so. I'm going to burn for that. Sorry, folks. No, it's fine. It's fine. Um, So they are in the process of getting arrest warrants and search warrants for his place when their surveillance team sees him go into his apartment with another man. And they're like, do we? Don't we? Do we wait for arrest warrants? And they're just like, screw it. We got to go in. They go in and this man is bound to a bed. And there's MacArthur, ready to go to town. The guy wasn't harmed yet, um, but they probably saved that man's life yeah. by just deciding to, to go But in. even then, you know, unless, and we don't really have details on that particular sexual encounter with that individual, but they could have easily have just walked into a bondage scene that was between two consenting adults. Oh, totally. That's not a killer. Totally. You know, and then that would have been a whole other thing. But it sounds, I mean, I would, it would be interesting to know whether or not this was as consensual as adults should be having consensual right. sex. Like, did he know, did the man know what he was getting into? Well, a lot of men came forward since and said that they had gone home with him Um previously and that it always turned into this submissive role play that got violent. Wow. So whether he was, um, you know, strangling them or inflicting some sort of um, violence with an object or with his hands, they found um, some, some other people also said that they were drugged and they would wake up and he was raping them. Or was, um, you know, seemed like he was about to do something really threatening or harmful to them. Um, they found photos of the victims after they were deceased on his computers. Uh, so po- some more horrible. posing and, and images. Um, but it, the police really did a disservice again because they tended to criticize the community for not coming forward with information sooner. So the chief of police or whatever they call it up there, um, that was kind of his answer. And they've, they've called for him to resign. He yeah, there's a yet, lot of tension. That was b- very badly done because that's a mixed message 
even like we were saying is then then don't you've already you told them there was no serial killer you told them there right. was nothing to be worried about and now you're pissed off or you're you know laying blame that they didn't sure. participate enough sure which is ridiculous so so pride week last year in 2018 was actually very somber you know, many chose to wear black to honor the victims although the murder had been caught by this point it, they're just really grief stricken still um, the police chose not to walk in the Pride Parade, as most cities invite their law enforcement to do. So um, much different this year. If you guys pay attention to our Twitter account, I retweeted this awesome parking enforcement officer up in Toronto, um, Adrian Porras, who was just lighting up Twitter at Pride the, last week. He was so awesome dancing and just he's amazing. Um, so go follow him. He's a lot of fun to follow. But it. This has now turned into there are 23 disappearances and murders of gay men from 1975 to the early 90s in this area that law enforcement's now looking at. And they they have not said whether or not they have ruled MacArthur in or out. Um, but there's just. And I think that's important to note, too, that, that they are being careful because in the past. And I'm talking not not necessarily recent past, but we're talking 25, 30 years and back. Sort of the approach of many law enforcement entities was, well, let's just lump all of them together. Right. And like, well, we, these are four unsolved ones here. They kind of fit the profile. So the idea that, that the Toronto police are actually going slower and trying to see if these – you know, he confessed to eight. Right. Um, he could have more. Well, he or, has, I don't think he's confessed. Did he confess? Oh, I thought he confessed. Maybe. Oh, or maybe he, they just pinned eight on him. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, to be able to make sure. Yeah, I'm okay with him going slow. I mean, it, yeah. I understand the families, you know, want to see justice in it. But I think it also has to be done correctly. And it it just needs to be done the right way. Okay, you know what? I just found it. As of the 29th of January of 2019, he uh, he, he confessed. Oh, okay. To so eight. this year, okay. He confessed to eight. Wow. Uh, very interesting. Very interesting to see what's going to happen with him long term. Yes. Yes. All right. So we're going to end in just talking about a very local case, a very interesting and disturbing case. So this is here in Los Angeles. Well, first, wait. Let's 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 make one distinction. I'm sorry, just one thing. Yes. we've been talking about a uh, you know a difficult way to approach the subject of serial killers. This does not. This next example does not meet the criteria for being a serial killer. However, it is an incredibly incredibly. I'll say that again. This is an incredibly problematic situation, an individual, and example of a disturbed individual who comes from privilege that has been endangering and involved in the deaths of individuals, marginalized communities. There we go. So that okay. it's, a, it's a good distinction to make from some of these other cases that we've covered. So... There's a man named Ed Buck who is a former West Hollywood City Council candidate. Um, he's a big Democratic 
Party donor here in L.A., well-known figure in the LGBT political circles here in Southern California, um, and just some disturbing things have come out of his behaviors and his home, really, So, in just the last couple of years. So in 2017, he was investigated for the, the overdose death of a black man named Jemel Moore, who was a sex worker. And Moore died of a meth overdose at Buck's home. So it's really interesting because in in The Advocate, which is uh, online, and is it a print it's publication? It's still in print, stuff? yeah. Um, I believe. I, mean, I think wrong. so, too. Um, publication that have kind of run with this story and bringing a lot of attention to it that numerous young gay black men in L.A., a lot of sex workers, have alleged that Buck has a fetish for shooting drugs into black men that he picks up off the street and takes them back to his home. And more, actually, so the victim from 2017 had actually written about Buck injecting him with drugs in his own journals before his death. Um, So in December 2016, this is just really chilling. He says, quote, I become addicted to drugs and the worst one at that. Ed Buck is the one to thank. He gave me my first injection of crystal meth. I ended up back at Buck house again and got manipulated into slamming again. I even went to the point where I was forced to forced to doing four within a day period. This man is crazy and it's sad. Will I ever get help? And then his last entry says, if it didn't hurt so bad, I'd kill myself, but I'll let Ed Buck do it for now, end quote. Just tragic, absolutely tragic. I mean, one of the things I would want to also add here is that Los Angeles has a very large uh, transient and homeless population. We have the largest of that population. We have statistically the largest LGBT youth population that are transient and runaway. And then of that statistical group, we have a huge section of them being the motivator for them being on the street is that they have been rejected by their families. They have been thrown out by their families for being LGBT. I don't know about Mr. Moore, who died at the age of 26. Um, We do know that he we don't know if he was a, if that was his only work as a sex worker. He may have been supplementing his income. There may have been other things going on. But what is very much indicated is that whether or not he had a substance use habit before he became engaged with Mr. Buck, it certainly was taken to another level. And even Shiloh, you used a term called slamming. And right. my hope is that a lot of people don't know what slamming is because sure. it's, it's horrible. So, And those, that's from his journal. It's from his, his journal. Words, and, yeah. and, and slamming is a term for uh, intravenous use of crystal meth. Right. And we don't really use it in terms of cocaine, but it's pretty much what's used in meth. And it's, it's part of the addictive process when – you know, you're ever you're trying to reach ever enhanced levels of being high, and this is pretty much instantaneous. It's instantaneous. It's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly addictive for some people. Uh, and in this case, I mean, Mr. Moore was just suffering. Right. You know, he was in the throes of this horrific a- addiction, and you know, at the behest of this 
this guy that had also, I mean, you know, we talk about paraphilias, but the idea that he has just inculcated this particular fetish into his sexual repertoire that he wants to inject it into someone else right. as well as himself and then force them to watch pornography and masturbate or make them watch him. I'm going to get you high. Right. And I'm going to make you watch me do these things. There's just so many issues There's of so power and control. Yeah, it's it's we could spend a whole hour and a half unpacking that. Right. So Buck Buck claims he's not responsible for Moore's death and he did not give him meth. The DA's office looked into potential charges for manslaughter and all sorts of things and ended up rejecting all of those charges and not charging him. Um, and then just January of this year, 2019, a another black man, Timothy Dean, who was 55 years old, um, and lots of people say that he was a, a longtime acquaintance of Ed Buck. And a very different background. This yes. guy was successful. He was not a person who was involved in the sex trade um, or sex for work. Uh, right. He was a fashion consultant. He was active in uh, gay intramural sports that are, you know, pretty predominant here in West mm-hmm. Hollywood. You know, this is so – it's not like there was a particular profile that he was going for. But this right. guy, clearly Mr. Buck's motivation had to do with these fetishes around drug use. Allegedly. Allegedly, yes. Allegedly. So so Mr. Dean was also found dead in Mr. Buck's home. Very similar uh, circumstances, suspected overdose as well. So there, there's an or- organization, a racial justice group called Color of Change, and they, they have put together a, a petition. I just wanted to read what the petition says. It's really short. Um, but they're promoting – that something really needs to be looked into a little bit more closely here, that he can't get away with his privilege and his status just skirting the law. So the petition says the tragic and demeaning deaths of both Jemel and Timothy has not persuaded District Attorney Lacey to prosecute Ed Buck. No other black men should have should have to die before the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and the District Attorney take action. Ed Buck has created a system of abusing the vulnerability and poverty of black men, many whom have been described as being HIV positive and who were not addicted to drugs until coming into contact with him. Which we should also say, I mean, that's another HIV and Crystal are a, a horrific mix. I mean, individuals, you know, we live in a time now where individuals who are HIV positive it is a manageable condition. You know, right. there are wonderful medications. We now just recently, and this is actually some good news, we usually, we actually have our first individual with HIV who has lived to the age of 100. Oh, and that wow. is, that's a, that's a miracle coming from what my experience was in the early 80s my when goodness. all of my friends were getting sick. And that's, you know, we may use that in another episode coming up. Uh, but... The world is very different. However, one of the things that we do know about the effects of crystal meth, which is a horribly toxic drug, um, so far from anything. I mean, I think uh, you know there is sometimes there's still ephedra that's used in the in the making of it, but it's just it's just poison. It's absolute poison, right. and it literally destroys an immune system. That's uh-huh. all, if, if you're slightly impaired, it will absolutely destroy your t-cells and but it's an escape it's a way to feel better for a moment it's it's classic substance abuse coping and but you also wonder like were these people 
what was the process or what was the alleged process to bring someone into this level of use and this, you know, I mean, it's very clear to anyone that's an adult and is is aware of the effects of drugs. I mean, nobody in in this in Southern California doesn't know how bad meth is. Right. Yeah. Obviously, we've we've all seen faces of meth memes. Right. (laughs) It's awful. We've all watched cops. Come on. Exactly. Oh, all right. Um, I don't know. Any parting words for that before we get to just like, yeah, don't do drugs. Well, that's the first one. Don't do drugs. Um, You know what? No, I I will say this is that um, I, I, you know, you're my best friend and we, we share so much with each other and you have been from day one, clearly an LGBTQ advocate, you know, like never. You know, I mean, that's that's amazing for me. There is a little bit of an age difference sure. between us, but we hit it off immediately in our friendship. Right. And who I was and who my husband was was never that was like just not Second even nature. a blip Completely. on the radar of our relationship, which is wonderful because I grew up in a time where that wasn't always the case. Yeah. And yeah. unfortunately, you know, we're we're living in a time where. Um, the divisiveness, and I know I've talked about this, and I'm so sorry if people are bored and hearing it, but there is um, an us versus them mentality that is coming back up. And okay, you know what? I'm going to end it on. Let me. I know how to end this <laughs> okay, without okay, getting too maudlin. So I apologize, folks. I'm going to like the dumbest ass thing ever that I've heard of in the longest time is the fucking straight pride parade in Boston with Milo Yiannopoulos, who's one of the most horrifically disordered gay individuals. I mean, no, he's a, he's a a gay and he is a horrifically disordered individual who happens to be gay and is so infinitely punchable. And I mean, I would, I would love the chance to debate that asswipe. (laughs) <laughs> he's going to be the the they're calling him the mascot i mean this is just Ugh. a bunch of really the idea of pride the reason that pride exists is because we are trying to bring people back to a baseline of understanding that we're all equal and we all deserve the same rights right. regardless of our race creed culture gender gender identification sexual expression this is who we are we all are in this together. We're a community of the world and we shouldn't be marginalized. And pride is the way that we make people know that we're here and we're not going anywhere. Right. Straight pride is every day. It absolutely is every day. <laughs> the, the amount of privilege that comes with being straight is incomprehensible. But that's really interesting. You guys, you don't want to go to Boston instead of Chicago in a couple of weeks? I don't know. See that? Well, you know what? Dan will probably be filming. He's about to go on another project, and it, it's probably going to shoot in, in Boston. So, Boston. And nice. I love the city. And you know what? Some of the nicest people, like I had a great time. He was there filming surrogates years ago. And we right. had a blast. I remember that. But the I, I mean, I, I'm also kind of gleefully, evilly laughing, going, I can't wait to see how many Yahoo Billy Bobs show up to that and the protests. But what I do hope for and and I hope we all like it just not don't let it go to violence. I just hope uh, my wish would be it got zero attention. Well, that's no the way it should. No one was standing on the sidewalk. There's no cameras. Just right. what are you idiots? Well, look, doing? you know, and, and 
you know, that's how you deal with narcissism and that's how you deal with sociopathy is you make yourself the gray rock. You make yourself as non-reactive and let them peter out. And there's power in that. Oh, it works so well. Yeah. And, you know, we need to to not react. But then again, I do understand if if somebody wants to, they'll they'll do it. Okay. So speaking of Chicago, um, that's coming up July 13th. So as, as some of you probably saw on our social media, we got our first L.A. Not So Confidential t-shirts in. Um, and Scott and I would like to give one of them away between now and the festival. So here's your mission. If you have not left us a five-star review with a review on Apple Podcasts app, please go do that. Please. <laughs> and we will put your name in the hat for... One of our very first batches of T-shirts. We are going to take these to the festival with us. And then after that, we're planning on having them available for sale on the website. So they'll be available to the masses soon, but we want to um, be able to bring them to the people at the festival first. So please, Apple Podcasts, five-star review. Tell us what you think about the podcast. And... Um, Yeah, we're excited to give one of those away. And hey, if you're on other discussion boards for other wonderful podcasts, there are so many good ones out there. And I'm just blown away how many good podcasts are out there. I can't keep up. I can't do enough cardio. Not enough. And drive enough to to keep up. Commuting hours in the day. I know. But it's wonderful. And we're, you know, please mention on other threads if you feel like it. That other listeners on your other favorite podcast would like us if it's appropriate. You know, I don't want you to get banned from your admin. But if you can, that's a great way. Word of mouth is the way this stuff works. Totally. And we can't wait to see what happens from uh, the the podcast festival. It's going to be great. But I'm sure we're going to gain some more listeners there and expand our base. And, you know, keep the ideas coming in. Um, We've got a couple of really fun episodes coming up. It doesn't necessarily sound fun, but I promise you, and you know I have stories, in this particular subject, we're going to be talking about stalkers in a few Ooh, weeks, yes. and I have some unbelievable... I'm a, I was a victim of stalking. I'm lucky that it was not violent, but it's the weirdest and funniest version of stalking that could possibly exist. I so cannot wait. I can't wait to tell you guys. Okay. Um, I think that's it. Episode 16 in the books. And we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, folks. Bye-bye.